Welcome back to Attention, a podcast from the American Advertising Federation, District 10. I'm Ray Shillings. Conversations with the people in our industry who make advertising and marketing impactful and relevant. Our stories take you behind the scenes on a variety of advertising platforms where we explore current trends and topics. AAF District 10 promotes professional development and networking, recognizes advertising excellence, provides news and resources, helps develop future industry leaders, and promotes the value of ethical and transparent advertising. Find out more at aaf10.org. And welcome to another Fireside Chat from the American Advertising Federation District 10, 10 Questions with District 10. These Fireside Chats are a popular destination uh, to talk about the important things in our industry and in our world and uh, this was no exception. On the 15th of November, we talked about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, so what does that mean to you? Well, let's first look at the three words, all right? Diversity includes all the ways in which people differ, encompassing the different characteristics that make one individual or group different from another, including identity markers such as race, ethnicity, gender, disability, sexual orientation, religion, and more. It also takes intersectional diversity into account when people's identity is made of a number of underrepresented identities. It is often boiled down to a people's perception when they walk into a room and say, people look different. Okay, that's diversity. Now, equity. Equity is the fair treatment, access, opportunity, and advancement for all people, while at the same time striving to identify and eliminate barriers that have prevented the full participation for some groups. Improving equity involves increasing justice and fairness within the procedures and processes of institutions or systems, as well as in their distribution of resources. Equity is centered on fair treatment, such as any group of individuals' access, opportunities for advancement, and feeling like they are growing in the organization. All right, makes sense, right? Now let's look at the word inclusion. Inclusion is the act of creating environments in which any individual or group can be and feel welcomed, respected, supported, and valued to fully participate. An inclusive and welcoming climate embraces differences and offers respect in words and actions for all people. Inclusion goes beyond diversity because once you have a diverse staff, organizations must focus on retention. So now let's learn a little bit about the people behind today's 10 with 10 on DE&I. Dr. Cephas Archie is the moderator. Dr. Archie proudly serves as the newly appointed Associate Provost Vice President for Academic Affairs, Partnerships, and Community Engagement for Clayton State University. He joins the Clayton community from Texas A&M University in Dallas, where he served as the inaugural Vice President for Inclusion as well as led university corporate fundraising efforts for his role as Senior Advancement Officer. And next we meet the panelists. Dr. Whitney Boyd has dedicated her career to building pathways to college for those from underrepresented communities, specifically students of color and first-generation college students. Whitney enjoys and values family, faith, and fellowship. She's an entrepreneurial spirit, and is creative at heart. Also on the panel today is Keisha Townsend-Tate. Keisha joined GSDNM in 2021, bringing with her an innate ability to connect and create connection. She leads with empathy and passion for truly listening, analyzing and finding solutions that challenge the status quo to bring greater equity across the organization. She works tirelessly to diversify the agency's workforce to mirror the diverse audiences viewing GSDNM's work. And finally, we'd like you to meet Lee Brown. Lee is a creative director at GSDNM in Austin. In 2019, she and her partner were named to Adweek's Creative 100, and in 21, they were part of the team that won the Grand Effie for helping Popeye's Chicken Sandwich break the Internet. Their work for brands like Pizza Hut, Capital One, Avocados from Mexico, and Popeyes and Walgreens as aired during the Super Bowl. Lee started her career as a newspaper reporter, making her a storyteller long before storytelling was a buzzword. She's got a master's in advertising from UT, 
And she's passionate about DEI issues, helping create AND, a guide to better work through diversity, equity, and inclusion at andgsdm.com, which is recently recognized by the Mosaic Awards. This is a great panel, and you're going to enjoy this conversation. More importantly, maybe this will inspire you and all of us to do just a, a little bit better job with DEI. Enjoy. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin with a few questions that we have prepared, and we're going to ask specific panelists to begin the discussion, but also invite other panelists to be a part and to add on in any way that they seem appropriate. And so at this time, we will begin with our first question. Um, I'd like to begin this first question, and I will begin it with Keisha Townsend Tate. Um, Ms. Tate, through your own experiences, define what diversity means to you and the impact and or role it has had on who you are today. Yeah, I think diversity by definition just really speaks to having different people in the room. When I think about the business practice of diversity, it's hard to separate diversity from inclusion or equity. And I really see that as just the practice of bringing together people of all different backgrounds. And that includes race and gender, which we hear a lot about, but it also is age, it's abilities, it's socioeconomic backgrounds, it's educational backgrounds and schools that people go to. Um, and when I think about diversity for me and my experience within the advertising industry, which I've been in, all, in for almost all of my career, um, it has changed. And I feel fortunate to sit in the seat I am today as a chief inclusion officer. But when I started in advertising in New York City almost two decades ago, I was in a really diverse city, but the industry was not. And so for me at that time, starting out, um, assimilation was the name of the game. It was about trying and working so hard um, and exerting a lot of energy, frankly, to fit in to be um, like the other people I saw, but especially people that were above me in higher positions. So sometimes that showed up as speaking a certain way or starting to watch a show that honestly I wasn't interested in um, or having conversation around things that just honestly weren't things I were, weren't the same things I was talking about with friends and family. Um, you know, you flash flash forward to today, the industry is literally more diverse than ever, um, but we still have a ways to go. And I think, again, just I feel fortunate to be able to be part of the change that I wish I had. And in talking with a lot of students, both high school and college age through my work with E4, but also through GSDNM and speaking opportunities, um, I see people starting to own their authentic selves and you know, feeling comfortable being themselves and, and talking about the things that they like and understanding the value that, that their perspective brings to the workforce and that, you know, homogenous views are terrible and, and it is okay to disagree or to bring something up that um, people don't see. I didn't have that foresight or I didn't have anyone encouraging me to do that. So I used to swallow a lot of things. And I think um, seeing the literal diversity and really seeing how, how people are more free to be themselves, including myself in advertising today, um, is what I think about when I hear that question. I, I have to say, just listening to you speak was, was very, um, very reminding for me to think about what that looked like over time. Because I some of the things that I sort of took down is you, you stated how the city that you were in was diverse, but that the industry at that time was not. And so that is a unique perspective to say, how do we reside in a place that does support that, but it may not be as reflected in the actual employment spaces that we are in in the workforce. I'd say that's, that's a pretty profound statement. It, it also reminds me um, what that could look like uh, from a perspective of someone who was in K through 12 uh, versus someone uh, who was in the workforce itself when you spoke about assimilation. Right. And so assimilation talks about uh, wanting one to make the other more like itself. So I thought about how, you know, in many articles that I've read over time over the past five years, there were examples of how um, certain communities were required to cut their hair 
uh, when they were in schools because it made other people not feel comfortable that they had longer and or shorter hair. And so how in many uh, areas, um, people of certain communities are asked or are encouraged uh, to show up to work with their hair straightened or within a certain area because it makes other people feel more comfortable. And so again, just what that looks like on a daily basis is absolutely important. And I'm so glad you highlighted some of that. Thank you very much, Ms. Thompson. So we'll, we will move right along. If there are no additional comments from our other panelists on that question, we will move right along to our second question. Uh, and if I may, I'd like to call on Dr. Boyd for this one. Uh, the second question says, as an awarded thought leader in the DEIA arena, provide an example of one of your most impactful strategies and how it advanced organizational inclusive excellence. Thank you, Dr. Archie. Just hello to everyone out there uh, listening today. Thank you all so much for taking time to join in on this conversation today. When I think about my work specifically in this area, I always think I've always been challenged when, you know, people say like, oh, like you're an expert in this area. I was like, I'm just out here living, really. I'm out here living, but I have joined that with a lot of scholarly research and things to help me get to a point where I can make very informed decisions and also help guide other people to inform decisions. But for the most part, for me at the core of it, it, it was me. It was me and my journey, uh, similar to what Keisha was saying earlier about just trying to navigate a space that wasn't built with me in mind. I have entered institutions, higher education, worked in higher education where I was often the only one. And that was across different demographics. And it led me to a place of what I knew my experience was and wanting to shift that for those who were coming alongside me and after me. So I started to do more work around social identities and figuring out, so what does it mean when we begin to own who we are and we get to actually understand that? And for me, once I explored and better connected to who I was as a person, the game completely changed for me. And one of those ways that I think about um, in higher education, we didn't often have employee resource groups like you may see in some corporations, but I was actually a grad student. I um, Grew up in the rural south of Arkansas and a kid who was always encouraged to speak up and speak out. So I never really had an issue talking and to talking about things. But uh, one of the gifts that I think is being able to offer dissent and dissent can sometimes be seen as a negative thing. But I see it as a superpower because it allows us to think and be more creative in our approach. If we all think along the same lines and no one is willing to ask a tough question or no one is willing to offer a different perspective, how can we grow from there? Uh, so one of the things when I was talking about employee resource groups, I started to notice that there were uh, Black women being hired across the campus, but we really didn't have a space where we could connect. And so I, I was actually a graduate student at this time, and I asked about starting. I didn't have the language at that point that it was an employee resource group, but I just wanted to create a space for Black women. And I wanted it to be a space that was created for us and by us, while we had no rules and regulations on how we met, how we came together. And one of the things that has been the most empowering, I remember our first meeting, people came in and like, do other people know that we're here? I'm like, I don't care if they know, because we should be able to have a space and it shouldn't be like a secret society. We're just coming together and we framed it around. That's where I was able to bring in lived experience to research because we framed it around the dimensions of wellness. So we had actual framework that we were working on. And we were coming around this shared identity of being Black women and working in the same institution, but it allowed us to build partnerships. And how I framed that for my institution was it also led to retention and recruitment of other Black women in that space and them being willing to come. I had a, a woman who shared with me, she was there on campus for her interview. And uh, Dr. Archie, you were just talking about hair. And she was like, I saw you with your hair twisted. And I was like, I straightened my hair for this interview and I could wear my hair like that. I'm like, you exactly can. So it just always reminds me of the importance of representation. So that's something that I've carried with me is how do I remain true to who I am as a person, but then creating that for other people too, to where they can have a similar and shared experience. I love what you say about the superpower of disagreeing because I'm in a lot of meetings all day. Um, and sometimes you see work out in the world, especially in advertising. You're like, how did that get out there? Yeah, and it's it's because nobody spoke up. Probably someone in that room thought it, 
thought like, oh, this isn't right or is this okay? And so um, I love having someone in the room who's willing to speak up and try to cultivate that for myself uh, as well, even though it and is again, it not goes how back we're to socialized white. always. <laughs> Right. I grew up as the middle child between two brothers. I'm an expert at dissent. Like, <laughs> I was raised to offer dissent. So I then turned that into a way, how can I help our team grow, grow being able to ask questions? It's not that, not in a, it's just in a truth seeking manner so that we can stop some of the things that, huh, maybe that's not the exact approach we want to take. So we bring the question forward and allowing space for that to be a culture where we can offer dissent. I, I absolutely have to have to acknowledge that that's such a valid point, Dr. Boyd. Um, that the ability uh, and the space to have a different experience, right? And the position and the privilege that some of us often sit in, even myself as a male who possesses male privilege, that not everyone sits in the, the spaces that I do. Not everyone comes from the experience or knows the experience that I have. Not everyone comes from the exact same background, has the same needs, has the same values, etc. Um, but then the point of I offer you offering a position of difference, right? It, which highlights the recognition that, yes, we are all first people. And that's where I, I absolutely appreciated Ms. Tate's uh, sort of bio uh, where it talked about, you know, at the beginning, her, her greatest focus is on we are people, but then also the acknowledgement that there are different people, right? With different needs and different histories and different backgrounds. And so, I appreciate your intentionality of highlighting that it there are differences and it's okay to be different, uh, but within the very same context to say, just because I am different does not mean that I am less. And so that is a profound uh, statement that I just, I really want to talk about because I think that from Ms. Uh, Tate's position in the beginning, it talked about assimilation, how the natural desire is to have people you know, align with what we mostly feel is comfortable for us, recognizing and then identifying that the cultural norms are established by the majority, right? So whatever group there is, that is the majority. And that's not just respective to race. That's, that's not just respective to gender. That's not just respective to language. Whatever group is of the majority establishes those cultural norms. And so anything that's different from that cultural norm that has been established uh, seems alien. And so how do we create space with the intentionality of saying being different is a part of who we are uh, and the intersections that that brings? So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it so much. Uh, it, it seems like Lee just came right on in. So we will follow up with this next question. Uh, the third question, and it'll be somewhat uh, something I'm certain you've heard before, but I, I, I'd like for you to talk about what experiences or references you can have in your own work. So this question says, referencing the E in D-E-I-A, equity is prioritized and preferred over equality. Can you tell us why this is the case? And please feel free to use any professional or personal examples in your response. Sure. Um I think equality is sometimes the easy thing. It's easy to say, like, we're going to do everything the same for everybody. We're treating everybody completely equally. But if you're, you know, coming from a different experience or a different perspective, or you have different needs, different um, wants, different work styles, um, you might need something different. Um, and that's equity is getting the things that you need to actually thrive. Um, and I've been thinking about this. And I think one of the areas that we're going to really see this um, play out more and more in the next few years is with our neurodiverse colleagues. And that's sometimes like a bit of uh, diversity that we forget about sometimes because we can't see that as much. Uh, you don't necessarily know if someone uh, is coming in with just, a, you know, a different, a different background, different needs. Um, and I think the work environment sometimes is so key for those neurodiverse colleagues. Um, and so for a lot of them, you know, we're all coming back to the office. And that is great for some people. It's stimulating. You see people, you're social. And for other people, that is a nightmare of overstimulation and not having their downtime and not having like um, that space to do their best work, you know, or like advertising loves a group brainstorm. Again, that's great for some people. They want to bounce stuff off. That's great. 
other people, they need their like alone time. They need their quiet. They need their space to like really come up with something wonderful. Um, so if we require everyone to work in the exact same way, that might be equal, but that's not very equitable. And like we lose out on like those valuable contributions that um, everyone can make and the diversity of thought there. Can I add something, Dr. Archie? I agree with everything Lisa's accessibility is something and neurodiversity as a whole is something I think DEI practitioners over overall are starting to, to put more focus and emphasis in because it really does matter. And Lee's point about equity being giving people what they need. Um I equate equality and that word, like she said, is the easy word, is almost like colorblind, right? It is just the safe, like, let's just do it. I'll treat everyone the same. And you can't do that. And I think, um, you know, it's because people, it's acknowledging, equity is acknowledging that people don't start from the same place. There was a quote or a statistic as we were preparing for this panel, which is something I wanted to share because it's it's something I've seen and been trying to combat in our industry for a long time. But I think it was from Fortune, an article from Fortune, and the stat was that 42% of people land roles across all industries, 42% land roles as a result of nepotism. So that means almost half of the workforce is landing jobs because of who they know. Meaning that there are obviously a host of other people who aren't getting those same jobs. And that stat is wild. I was not expecting it to be that high. And then you have rulings like the latest, you know, on affirmative action from the Supreme Court that they're like, okay, yes, them making this ruling means that everything's going to be equal. But they did not strike down legacy admissions, admissions for donors, special other special preferences. And so who is going to be impacted the most are the people who are already starting from a different place as others. And so I just cannot stress the importance of equity for that reason. And, and it's simply just the acknowledgement that, to Lee's point, not everybody needs the same thing. And also the acknowledgement that not everyone is starting from the same place. And we really want to push equity so that everyone can thrive and and. That is, you know, at the heart and soul of what a lot of our DEI practitioners preach and do on a daily basis. Wow. Dr. Archie, can I add something to that? Certainly, please. So when I always, often when I talk to um, in classrooms or in trainings about like diversity, equity, and inclusion and all that, I tell people, you all seen that example about like diversity is when you invite everyone to the party. Um, and then I told them like, Equity is like, okay, or you probably everyone has a chance to dance and then, you know, all this. But I tell them, like, I'm a Beyonce fan, right? So if I come to your party and you play no Beyonce, no music that I want to dance to, then is that really going to help me feel like I belong in that space? And I use that because I help try to help people just connect it to like real life examples that hopefully that they can connect to. So what I'm saying is like the sense of belonging comes in it's a psychological feeling that I belong you could tell me all day like oh you were able to be hired here we were so excited to have you we're so excited to have you on the team but if I don't feel like I belong in that space it's all for not and so we oftentimes do performative measures within organizations that kind of allow us to check a box to say that we did that we had this opportunity for everyone everyone was invited everyone had a chance to apply for that position Keisha it just so happened that my nephew was in the pool too, and he got the job. But how do we actually build equitable spaces that lead to a sense of belonging? It's going to take all of those things, offering opportunities for people to actually feel like they belong, feel like their voices are heard, and that they're not just there talking. You give us a seat at the table, but are you listening to what we're saying? Wow. I, I The three of you gave some exceptional responses. I just, just to, to sort of some of the things that I wrote down is one of them that I wrote down is uh, the actual acknowledgement of our differences. When you just say colorblind, it just it means that there are no differences. And as I think most of all, if not all three of you have sort of highlighted is that there are many differences, right? Differences in from individuals and the differences from different cultures. Uh, those differences uh, sort of are separate and are unique and distinct, but also those differences can intersect, right? And so it talks about the who, we, who we are 
uh, as a people and the differences and the commonalities that we share. And I, th I thought that was a really profound point. Uh, when you spoke about just a second ago um, about um, the differences among people, even in the neurodiverse colleagues, and recognizing that, you know, for, for some access and our ability to say, oh, I can walk through that door, so I don't need someone to make sure that it's accessible, so you should be able to walk through that door, right? So it puts us at the center focal point, right? Not considering that there are people who have varying abilities that may be greater and or less than in many regards. And so equity says we must consider the whole versus just the needs of some or those who are the majority. And so again, I just, I, I appreciate the examples. And then lastly, with Dr. Boyd, I, I, you, you hit on a nerve for me personally that I, I just want to just, just really elevate that word belonging. So it seems that many entities have focused on their priority being belonging. Uh, and I, I just want to be clear that the precursors to belonging is being intentional with diversity and equity and inclusion. You can't have belonging if you don't have diversity, equity, and inclusion as a part of your foundation, right? And so you can't, you know, say, oh, we're just going to go, oh, you belong here, but yet there is no inclusion, yet there is no representation of anybody else. And just when you spoke about, you know, the, the Beyonce music, right? So, oh, you, you, we invite you to be here, but there is no part of what you are that will be allowed when you get here. Right. And so when you talk about belonging, you can't you can't prioritize it over diversity and equity and inclusion and access because those are the fundamental recipe ingredients for belonging. And so, again, I, I, your answers are just spot on and I appreciate the work that you all are bringing to this. Thank you. So we have our next question. We'll go back to, I'd say, Keisha. Uh, question four says, so how does the priorities of your organization align with the values and commitments of DEIA initiatives? And so I'll state that, state, state that once again. How does, your, how does the priorities of your organization align with the values and commitments of DEIA initiatives? Yeah, I think like Dr. Boyd said, like it's got to be more than just a checkbox. It's got to be more than performative. I took this role at GSDNM. Um, because I felt the difference um, and that it was more than just words. It was like they had the receipts, as I tend to say. Um, they, they, they could back that up with, with proof points, essentially. Um, and for me, it's like you're not doing DE&I right if it's not embedded in everything you do. So it's not just in HR. There are some people where there are some organizations, excuse me, where DEI just solely sits in HR. Well, yes, recruiting and retention is part of DEI strategy, but that is one of five pillars for me. So if you're just doing it in HR, you're not doing it right. If you just have a supplier diversity program, you're not doing it right. If you are just bringing in your DEI lead at the end in casting and you didn't include your team or those perspectives from the initial strategy brief to get to the production and the final piece of work, you're not doing it right. So embedded across everything you do is I think key. And then the other key part that um, I feel fortunate for the team around me and my leadership um, peers here at GCNM too, that it's everyone's job. For so long, this practice area, before it was even, you know, the trendy thing to do after the murder of George Floyd, it sat on one person, and usually that person was statistically a Black woman, right? Just statistically, that is who sits in these roles, and it was their job. And any time things weren't going right or numbers weren't, like, getting hit, even though they had no bearing on those decisions when they were being made, they were the ones held accountable. Truly doing DEI right means holding everyone accountable. And obviously there is there is a leader and there's someone who should be driving strategy and is also held accountable who can hold other people accountable. So for us at GSDNM, that looks like it's part of everyone's review, right? So one of your five goals for every employee has to tie or relate to our overall company goals for DEI. 
And that's how, and I, that means I have to be transparent in sharing what those goals are, sharing on the progress of those goals. But it also means Lee, as a creative director, has to be accountable to helping achieve those goals. And so for me, um, that's that's what DE&I embedded into the company's values really looks like when you're doing it right. Outstanding. Anyone else want to add? Lee, Dr. Boyd? I will say and fund those efforts. Um, actually put funding to support and give people like Keisha who are tirelessly leading these efforts to staff to support it. Because when you're asking people to lead and develop change around the hardest things for people to do is mainly acting right. People don't want to act right. But um, how do you actually give them the funds and the staff, which includes staff resources to advocate in the way that they need to in those roles? I, I, I have to add to that. And Lee, I want to hear your thoughts to that as well, because when we talk about organizational priorities, right? Uh, and I think that because that was the question, how does the priorities of your organization align? And so what, what I do know is that if something is a priority, then that means the very same support to your point, Dr. Boyd, the very same resources, the very same benchmarking, the very same tracking that we do with all other priorities, the very same accountability structures that we have in place, the very same shared governance that we say are, are part of our infrastructure. Uh, again, that's uh, examples of what that looks like when an organization says, not only do we, we, we value it, but we are going to find ways to operationalize it into our system so that it becomes a common practice of who we are and what we do. Absolutely. Dr. Boyd, you hit a very valid point, which was the budget. So if it's so important, as you know, things that we value highly, that we put as our mission and our vision and our organizational values, then how are we looking at systemically embedding into our budget processes the goals that are around diversity, equity, inclusion, and access so that it's not siloed to one person like Dr. To like Lee, where it's her job to do it, but every person who annually submits a budget articulates in that budget what they are doing to operationalize the systemic priority that as an organization, we all have said is a value, right? And so again, is it a part of that process? Because obviously in many ways, financially, we speak with, our, with, with our, where we're allocating funds to. So uh, just outstanding responses. And I, I could not say more. Lee, you wanted to add something to that as yeah. well? Yeah, I just wanted to say that in part of making it everyone's job in an organization is that making sure that everybody has like some level of education and competency around this. Um, and I think GSDNM has done a particularly um, good job um, as an agency in doing this. Um, like we've mentioned before, we have our, our AND guide, which is our, you know, guide to doing better work through diversity and inclusion that everybody, you know, gets when they come on board. We have a core values checklist that actually like lists out like these are the company's six core values and how they relate to diversity. So like, for example, like curiosity is a core value. So it's, you know, are you curious about the lived experiences of other people? Do you listen to the people on your team who aren't exactly like you? And these are things that like we expect everybody to kind of just like come into a meeting with, come into the work with. Um, we also have a series um, that uh, we do every, is it every quarter, every couple of months? called Elephant in the Room, which gives uh, employees, uh, it's like a panel discussion like this, that they take on like one difficult topic uh, for each one. But hearing your coworkers and colleagues talk about these issues, I think makes it more real sometimes. It, it People are vulnerable, um, but you can't make diversity everybody's job if they don't know how to do that job. Um, so I think that's really important for us to all think about how can we help our colleagues do that job. Absolutely. I, a, a very, very great addition to that question. As, you know, as leaders, oftentimes we set expectations and priorities, but are we providing the resources, the tools, and the supports for our people to meet set expectations that we are establishing? And so those spaces and opportunities to train, 
to allow people to get to know one another in ways beyond the work that they do, to recognize that we are more than the titles that we hold or the positions that we have, but there are living, breathing people under the work that we do every day is a profound statement. I appreciate that. I, I have to, I, I don't know if it was Keisha or if it was Dr. Um, Boyd, who, who or maybe it was you that, that said the name George Floyd and it brought back a memory of something. Um, so during the time of George Floyd, um, there was organizations locally, regionally, and nationally that sort of developed this um, petition campaign that said racism is a health crisis. Uh, and many of you may have read all of those. You know, there was 40, 50 organizations and even us in higher education who signed up and said, yes, we say it's a health crisis. Racism is a health crisis. And so in the in the beginning of my introduction, they read the statement that I formerly was the chief equity officer for the city of Rochester in New York. And as a part of that, what I did is I, two years after George Floyd, I took that very same list of organizations who signed that petition and I sent them all an email individually saying how proud I was for their, 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 their work. And but I asked them to review the list of their highest ranking boards. And I asked them to send me the uh, gender and racial breakdown of each one of their governing boards, because you can't talk about it's a health crisis and representation matters, et cetera. And two years later, there is still, you know, homogeneous reflection across the board of the group that makes decisions that impacts everyone, right? And so again, this is just the opportunity to say, it can't be a fad. It can't be because it's the hot topic. When you talk about these things, how are they reflected? Because the question is about our organizations, right? How are they reflected in what you do and how you practice daily? And so again, just opportunities that really further the discussion of what your responses was. Dr. Boyd, do you have anything to add? Yeah, when you said that, first of all, I wonder who responded, but I'll email you and ask you, can you forward me all their responses? But it made me think about, uh, so in my research, I've researched around the experiences of first-generation college students. And I often know, like, if you're first-gen in college, you're probably going to be the, more than likely, you're going to be the first-gen, maybe in that type of role that may require a college degree. Um, and a lot of that research led me to do some self-evaluation and I came to this notion around like that proximity doesn't equal advocacy. I think sometimes we get it confused when we're in close proximity with certain groups and certain populations. We then assume a role that we think we're an advocate. But I always challenge people to consider this. Would someone of that group consider you an advocate for them? Would they consider you an advocate for their population, whatever that said area is? But I, I just want to challenge us to think about that Oftentimes, when we start to get more diverse people in our workforce, we start to see ourselves as an advocate and that we're doing this work, we're doing important work. But is that true advocacy or are we just in close proximity to those groups and people? Um, and would they, in turn, feel that we are advocating for them and feel that their voices are heard and that they belong in those spaces? So I, just to that point, and we're going to move on to the last question. I just want to say this one thing. To that point, when you think about advocacy, oftentimes we equate the work of advocacy to the people who are already most disenfranchised, right? So women are expected to speak up for women, the disabled community, uh, the international community, uh, the lower socioeconomic status, the veteran community, right? So whatever group that's already being negatively impacted, it's often put the burden is placed on them to, to, to advocate for the change. But I, I'd like to highlight something really quickly. Um, so slavery did not end because slaves thought it needed to end, right? Slavery ended when people who were not slaves stood up and said, we too say this will end. And so the role of advocacy is most impactful when it is not the people who are the marginalized or disenfranchised groups. I am certain that women today, there's data that shows that women make, as you all know, less than our male, less than their male counterparts. That's not a myth. It's not a perception. It's fact. Uh, if I went out, I'm certain and polled women, if they think that needs to change, 
I'm almost certain that not 100% of women would say absolutely it needs to change. But clearly, it has not changed because the people who benefit from that have not stood up unanimously and said, we too say this will change, which is men, right? And so I want to make sure that I am being clear that it is not just the duty of those who are currently being negatively impacted to advocate for things to change, but it is the role and the responsibility of us and those who sit in certain spaces who are not to say, we must use our voices to echo that we align and say these things must change. So thank you for that. We'll get into the last question for this afternoon um, and I'll ask for responses from each. Um, but it says, how have you seen the DEIA landscape evolve over the past year? Uh, and what continued local evolution are you anticipating in 2024? Um. You know, I was the one who brought up George Floyd and that was, we live in a very cyclical, like our history is always like, like this, like you can point back, especially with civil rights, it's always up and down or some pe people think of it as like a pendulum and it swings really far this way. And then it starts to make its way back. I feel like we are coming off of this curve at in June of 2020, all of a sudden uh, I was floored by the, I was in a different company, out of corporate uh, company, but working in a diversity role. And, you know, the pennies that I was begging for at the time um, and, you know, the, the requests that were being made or the doors that were being closed on me, all of a sudden June comes around and I am now propped up. I'm everywhere. They found money to do these things or partnerships or some of the things I had been asking to put in place are now starting to be put, put in place. And it was like amazing. Um, and there was a lot of groundswell, for lack of a better word, around DE&I uh, when that happened. I will say lately in the past year, to answer your question, that momentum is stalling. I think it's stalling, one, because that is again, our history and people's attention spans when things become a fad or trend, it it fizzles out. And maybe it was too much. The pendulum had swung too far to be sustainable in a lot of ways because people were not ready to build or they weren't building practical and sustainable approaches. It was just this thing of, let me get you a check for a hundred million dollars. And it's like, well, what am I going to do with that? Like, I need to plan this out. We weren't being strategic about things. Um, but I also think the fear there's a lot of fear right now. Backlash for brands, if we think about advertising of, you know, someone like Target who had been advocating for the LGBT community for a long time. And then they advocate for a lot of historically excluded communities, but have been doing these promotions. And then you have, you know, DE&I as a talking point for one of the political parties. You've got Supreme Court rulings. Nobody wants to get caught in a culture war, especially a brand let alone individual for saying the wrong thing or something that could get you fired, right? There are true implications these days happening for brands, for individuals. Um, so I think momentum is stalling for those reasons. I think it is only going to get hairier uh, as the presidential election for 2024 heats up. But I will say, as, as negative as that sounds, I will say this is the opportunity for people who truly believe in it to stand stand your ground and stand firm in what you do. Um, because again, I'm all about receipts. And when you do the hard thing, usually that's when you're making the biggest difference. It's really easy for everyone to jump on board when it was the popular thing to do. But now as it starts to become less popular and less vocalized, um, I think the companies and brands who will do it will stand out uh, all that much more and, and have this time to look back to. So I just left add color and the theme was double down and double up. And that is truly my mantra for the next year. Dr. Boyd, I know we, we're, we're, we're shrinking on time, so we'll give you a minute okay. to respond. Okay. Um, when I think about where we're headed or how it's changed, I think that it's been politicized in a way that's detrimental to our future and to our current day. And my hope is that institutions and organizations can reaffirm a commitment because we still have people at the core who are impacted. And I'll share in the chat box an op-ed that a, a friend recently wrote about this topic. Thank you. Lee. Yeah, and I'll just do a quick follow. I mean. I think some of the things that happened after George Floyd have stuck in the sense that like there's been education. I feel like 
diverse casting is sort of table stakes now. I feel like we're having to explain like less stuff to clients and people, the agency, but you're correct. It has not stuck as a priority, but at least there's been some kind of the base level has risen up a little bit, but it rose up a lot for a second and then kind of shrunk <laughs> down. Um, so it, I, th- I still think we're making progress, but um, not as much as I think a lot of us here would like. Um, I also think to double on the, the target thing, like Bud Light's uh, controversy last year, brands got scared, you know, like all of a sudden it was like, oh, this one very small, you know, you know, we sent a, an influencer a can of beer and now we're like on Fox News for 20, you know, for, you know, weeks. Um, and I think that really scared a lot of brands. And so we're seeing um, slippage, I think, on anything that's considered like controversial or, you know, like things are becoming controversial again uh, when they shouldn't be because it's human rights. It's, you know, it's everybody having a chance to belong. But um, I'm hoping, I think you're right, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I'm hoping that eventually brands start being willing to take those stands again um, and don't all kind of hide in the corner and go back uh, to pretending that being apolitical is not political. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Your responses are exceptional. I'll just add this one statement um, to the point that I think you all were sort of reiterating. Courage is not the absence of fear. Right. But is our ability to recognize that in certain spaces, fear will be a part of it, but our ability to embrace that fear and push forward anyway. As leaders, that's what courage is. And so I appreciate the leadership uh, of the work that you each do every day. Clearly, there was a reason why you have been recognized for that work. And so we are elated to have you continue to be a part of this discussion this will be a com- this is a commitment that will not just be a one-time isolated thing, but an ongoing dialogue. And we thank you for your service and the commitment that you have shown us today, but as well as the many different communities you serve. Uh, Jimmy, I know that there may be some uh, a, a few questions in the chat. If you would like to provide those to some of us, we can uh, provide some responses if possible. Or if not, then we can move forward to closing. Sure thing. We've got one question, so it's perfect timing. And just thank you guys so much. This was such a fantastic call, uh, conversation. Um, the question we've got is, and now I can't see it. Uh, I remember it was, uh, Crystal was asking, are there any specific brands that are doing a really great job in the area of DEIA that are providing authentic messaging? Crystal, I'm sorry if I got your question wrong. I can't find it in the chat anymore. The one that comes to mind for me is Nike. I mean, they are someone who has not always, they're like, they're very authentic in their messaging. They do some things that other brands can't do, right? Because you've got to kind of plant the seeds to be able to get where Nike is. So that's not something we'd recommend for all of our clients, but they are someone to me who courts controversy in a way that makes a difference um, and doesn't care when there's backlash or they're on the, you know, Fox News six o'clock for weeks at a time. They embrace it. So. I think on the consumer side, I think about Peloton. I feel like Peloton has uh, a lot of diverse perspectives that are represented in their trainers and instructors all the way to through their branding, too. Man, the first one that came to my mind was also Nike, just because <laughs> they okay. actually held their ground a little bit, you know, which, uh, again, I think that was some of the mistake that like a Bud Light made was then, right. you know, going like not just holding on and saying, yeah, we did this and that's who we are. They were like, oh, sorry, sorry, let's fire some people. And that, I think, was honestly more harmful in the long run than if they hadn't done anything to begin with. I don't know about others, but it. It angered me a lot. And same when Target did the same thing. They were facing transphobia and they just pulled down whole lines of items because they didn't want to be in the spotlight. Um, if we have, we're on the hour, but we have one more question. Um, how would you advocate or work to inject DEIA into the workspace and workflow for people who are neurodivergent? This seems like it's something often overlooked. 
So at GSDNM, I can just speak to the process we have, which is basically a form that people fill out, new hires, and then also some people who have conversations with their managers, because I, I think like accommodations is so personal based on people's experience and also where they sit. Someone like myself, I have an office, but if you are someone who's neurodivergent um, and someone who struggles with ADHD, the open seating policy is really hard for you and you need more of a closed off space or sometimes it's lighting. So it's the, the needs are so unique that for me, it's just uh, getting providing a platform for people to share what they need and then making those accommodations and being mindful of it too. Yeah. And making sure people are comfortable enough to have that conversation in the first place, rather than just, you know, struggling through. I was going to add, like, I know I see it a lot in the classroom and how I can build a classroom to do so. I was, so I would say for those in the workforce to start figuring out now, because students are becoming more aware of their uh, neurodivergent needs and they will bring those into the workforce. And so I, I would definitely tell you to start planning now. Specifically, I, I see more of it with Gen Z and people's just awareness and their own self-ability to ask questions and, and know what they're in need of. And then lastly, I would just add, just to make sure you work with the organization to make sure that there are processes in place where you can disclose them uh, in an appropriate way, uh, where there is a step, a policy, an operation that allows you to disclose and not feel that to disclose, you'll be harmed in your decision to disclose. And so that's the systemic approach to saying, do we have processes in place that allow people to communicate what their needs are, that allow people to uh, work alongside uh, groups that may best understand the needs? And so that's where your policies, your processes in place need to be developed with people who are of these communities. Because often when you create processes without the people that actually live these experiences every day, you ultimately make decisions that negatively impact them because they were not included at the table when you created them. And so it's important to work with your system structures that confirm that these are a part of your organization's infrastructure uh, and also make sure that you have the advocates speak up as well so that it's not just people who are of the community saying we need we need to do better, but it is a larger opportunity for everyone to say we lean into one another's needs. Many thanks to Austin Sandy for putting this together for another great 10 questions with D10. Thanks to our moderator, Dr. Cephas Archie, to our panelists, Dr. Whitney Boyd, Keisha Townsend-Tate, and Lee Brown. Did you enjoy the conversation? Did it mean something to you? Then tell a friend about this podcast and have them take a listen as well. This has been another phenomenal D10 Fireside Chat. 10 questions with District 10. Hope you've enjoyed it. And what a great conversation today. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our panelists and to our moderator and for bringing this conversation to a next level because we need to do that. You've been listening to a podcast from the American Advertising Federation, District 10. You can find out more at aaf10.org. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Do that and you will never miss a new podcast. Your rating on iTunes will help us grow. And don't be afraid to share what you've heard today on social media. Until next time, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. This is Ad Tension, copyright 2023. I'm Ray Shillins.